Welcome along to Red Star Radio, the podcast of the Marx Engels Lenin Institute. And today is a special on the recent turbulent activity within the US banking system. And we'll be asking the question as to what this is, what it represents, and does it represent a new crisis or merely the continuation of a rather old crisis now? So today, today being the 20th of March 2023, we witnessed the shotgun wedding of the troubled Swiss bank, very old and well-established Swiss bank, Credit Suisse, and its takeover by UBS, another Swiss bank, in what, according to the reporting of the Financial Times today, is essentially a government-forced move, that the Swiss government essentially told UBS, you are taking over Credit Suisse, and you're not really having that much choice in the matter. So in the end, they take over Credit Suisse for the sum of 3.2 billion US dollars. And this has all been prompted by the fact that, again, according to the Financial Times' own reporting, that the Swiss government, no doubt also prompted by the US federal government, were afraid that if Credit Suisse was allowed to just burn, allowed to fail, then it would kick off a wave of contagion within the Swiss banking sector, within the wider European banking sector, and of course in the American banking. Now, this of course was a problem that was rumbling on for quite some time. If you remember back in early 2022 and late 2021, there were stories of Credit Suisse being in significant trouble. In fact, they were reported as having significantly overcommitted on their liabilities as early as three years ago, all the way back in 2020 during the COVID scare. So this is a problem that's been rumbling along. And of course, when you get a bank as old and established as Credit Suisse, it actually takes a long time for the crisis to fully manifest itself because investors in the bank will keep thinking that eventually something will come up. So even if, like Credit Suisse was, massively overexposed in terms of its huge amount of liabilities, people like the Saudis, who were significant investors in Credit Suisse, will keep thinking, well, we'll keep putting the money in or we'll keep our investment in because, well, even if things do go wrong, eventually the Swiss government will be forced to backstop the bank. And eventually, this is indeed what has happened, because even though UBS has taken this over, it is clear that the Swiss government was playing a significant role in essentially ordering UBS to take it over. And the crisis was finally prompted, it came to a head, when the Saudi National Bank, who are the biggest single investors in Credit Suisse, basically said, no, we're not going to put any more money in. And that, of course, caused the panic. And so, again, we return to the question of what is this? Is this something new or is this something which is an ongoing crisis? Now, my argument would be, and I have made this argument before, that this is a ongoing crisis. It is at least as old as the 2008 financial crisis. And if you want to go back further, you could even make an argument this is a crisis that's been an unfolding almost continually since around about the middle 1960s. Or if you really want to take it uh, back, you could say that this is all part of the grand crisis of capitalism in its imperialist phase, which was identified by Lenin during World War One. So we'll take our explanation, though, partly from the 1960s to the present day, as I've explained before. 
But before we get into the longer term explanations, it's also important to look at what has gone on across the other side of the Atlantic with regard to Silicon Valley Bank, a bank that most of us never heard of before it crashed, though it was one of the 20 big banks in the United States until very recently. So why did Silicon Valley Bank suddenly find itself in an awful lot of trouble? Well, the answer lies in the fact that it was buying large amounts of U.S. treasuries, which when they bought them at a time when interest rates were so low as to be practically zero, these seemed like a low-risk investment. But now the Federal Reserve has raised rates several times over the last 18 months, currently sitting at 4.5%. And whereas that's quite low in comparison to, for instance, the early 1980s, where it went as high as 20%, it was enough to make the investment that Silicon Valley Bank had made in these treasuries worth considerably less, meaning that this big investment that they had made was now a huge loss. And they didn't have the assets in place to counterbalance that. And then when they moved to sell $2.25 billion of new shares in their company to raise more liquidity, they started a panic and a run on the bank, which they, of course, didn't have the cash in place in order to cover. And so following some toing and froing, Silicon Valley Bank has now been essentially taken over by the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is acting as its receiver. And this came after a series of panicked maneuvers from the California political establishment, including Gavin Newsom, whose wife may well be exposed to uh, the potential fallout of a Silicon Valley Bank bankruptcy, given that she'd done business with it and continued to do so. And, of course, perennial Russiagate favourite Eric Swalwell was all over the place, screaming that there needed to be a bailout right fucking now. So, clearly, the California political establishment, mainly Democrats, it must be said, were desperate for the federal government to step in and prevent a full-scale collapse. And it seems that the Biden administration has instructed the Federal Reserve to take all action necessary to prop this thing up and stop the risk of a contagion. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, though, has recently reported that the U.S. banking system is sitting on potentially as much as $620 billion of unrealized losses in their securities portfolios, meaning investments that they had made which are now turning into gigantic losses. And this is why I argue, and many others do as well, that this cannot be made sense of in terms of just the actions of the Biden administration since it came into office or even the Trump administration or COVID or anything else. These are all, of course, factors that operate in the background. But what is actually going on is the return of the crisis of 2008. And why has this returned in the way that it has? Because fundamentally, as even the Financial Times points out, the crisis of 2008 was not resolved. It was put off. To use a common phrase, it was a can that was kicked down the road, by principally by the Obama administration, but also by Trump. And so what did happen back in 2008 was, of course, you get the banking crash, you get the big names of Wall Street like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers going to the wall, and then the Bush administration, the figure of Hank Paulson, the current Treasury Secretary back then, 
They step in and force some shotgun weddings on Wall Street and step in with huge bailouts. Having initially looked as if they weren't going to do it, they eventually went all in on bailing out the system. And that's, of course, the period that gives birth to the phenomenon known as quantitative easing, which continued for a long time during the Obama administration and came back again under the Trump administration with the Federal Reserve buying up large amounts of troubled assets, shall we say, mainly mortgage-backed securities and other large amounts of corporate debt. So what happened was in 2008, they essentially flooded the system with new liquidity, with money mainly provided by the Federal Reserve and the federal government, and they were able to restore confidence in the system so that loans would be made and the faith of investors in the debts of the banks and the debts more widely of corporate America and ultimately the ability of the American government itself to settle its debts, even if in reality it couldn't, if they all got cashed in at once. The confidence of the system was restored for a while and this was the period of the Obama administration. It's why so many in the particularly moronic sections of the bourgeois press in the United States look back on the Obama period as a golden one because that's the period where they managed to struggle out of the hole that they had dug for themselves for a little while at least. But if you look at the popular explanations that were given to the American and British publics at the time regarding the crisis, it was all about the fact that the banks had engaged in risky behavior, that they'd taken on risky packages of debt, that they'd bought too many of these packages through collateralized debt obligations or other fancy titles that these packages of unpayable debt had been given and of course given AAA investment ratings by the ratings companies like Moody's and what we're told is that the banks had engaged in all this risky behavior that there'd been irresponsible actions taken and this was why the system had landed in a hole and much of the focus was on housing and mortgages particularly with the collapse of the mortgage providers, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the United States. And this was the given explanation as to what had gone on. But of course, you then have to ask the question, well, why was it the case that the US banking system and the British banking system and most of the European banking system was engaged in very similar behavior? And then you have to look at, well, how long had they been doing this and why? And the, the answer to why lies in the long-term crisis of profitability of American, British, and ultimately European capitalism as well. But let's talk about American capitalism because this is the premier capitalist country in the world and the one which will give us the biggest problem if it goes down the pan. So why were the big American banks buying up all these debt packages, these mortgage-backed securities? Well, the answer is, of course, that they've been pushed into backing more and more risky ventures, buying up more and more debt packages and other unsafe bets, shall we say, because the profitable outlets for American capital have been shrinking, and they have been shrinking for many, many years. If you look at some of the crashes that have taken place since the turn of the 20th to the 21st century in the United States, then a lot of this is given a superficial explanation about investors running into a new field and 
over investing in it and then the whole thing collapsing. This is, of course, the explanation that was given for the collapse in 2000 following the dot-com bubble bursting. But of course, the massive overinvestment into that, the huge overestimation as to what the dot-coms would do was because, again, it was a relatively new field of investment, but it was overstated as to precisely what this would mean for the economy, that this would mean a gigantic new burst of life for American capitalism. It proved to be nothing of the kind. But a lot of investors jumped in on this, and ultimately some of them got burnt in a brief recession in the earliest part of the 21st century. Then, of course, you get the Bush administration trying various different things to reinflate the economy and to get things going again. And part of this was in response to the brief panic after 9-11, after George W. Bush issued his most immortal words, go out there and shop to fight the terrorists. Really immortal Churchillian stuff there. But, of course, Bush and his gang pushed through the... Uh, measure that is now known as the Bush tax cuts, which was all about, of course, principally giving tax cuts to the very richest members of American society, the upper end of the bourgeoisie. But it was done in the hope, according to those who designed it, the economists who worked with the Bush administration on designing it, it was done in the hope that this would stimulate the economy more. And of course, what happened was a pattern that has become very familiar, which is a load of stock buybacks, share buybacks which inflate the value of the companies don't actually invest anything new but the shares go up on paper everybody on the board gets a bonus the senior management team get rewarded very handsomely and everybody hopes that they can cash out before the merry-go-round stops but stop it does in 2008 so the banking system and wall street city of london etc and the big firms that operate there have been forced into these ever more risky investment patterns over the last 30 years, really. And that comes from the crisis of imperialism itself. And that comes out of the crisis that relates to the falling rate of profit and the lack of profitable outlets for capital now. And the ruling class in the advanced capitalist nations has been looking desperately around the place to find profitable outlets for its capital and it can't find any which is of course why the rate of investment in british capitalism and american capitalism has become so low even before the crash of 2008 because the profits you can realize from investing in britain and america are actually very low it's why of course imperialist countries like the united states and britain their principal business is the export of capital to areas of the world where they can make profit they can't make anything like enough profit from investing in anything inside the United States or inside Britain or inside France or increasingly inside Germany either. With the lack of profitability being a real problem and the lack of investment following on from that, we also have, of course, the increasing problem of the zombie company. And this is a company which can barely make enough profit to service its debts. It limps along from quarter to quarter. And according to an article from Bloomberg, this was from the midpoint of last year, 2022, around about one-fifth of the US's 3,000 largest publicly traded companies are what would be classified as zombie companies, including 
groups such as American Airlines and, of course, the troubled cinema meme stock favourite AMC Entertainment. And this is a similar situation inside Britain where you have thousands and thousands of companies staggering around, barely able to make the interest payments on their debts. And this was something that could carry on for a while when, of course, money remained perpetually cheap and credit was relatively easy to get hold of. But when the central banks started going into their tightening of the monetary policy following years and years of interest rates being practically at zero, suddenly these companies start running into large amounts of problems. And of course, all of these companies have debts which are owned by somebody. And those people then or those institutions are exposed to potentially huge losses if these rather large companies like an airline, like an entertainment chain are to suddenly go out of business, then that might start a contagion as well. Everywhere you look inside American and British capitalism, you can see gigantic piles of debt that have been racked up during a period after 2008. And now they face a problem. Do they let these companies go to the wall? At the moment, it seems like the American government is unwilling to let a potential mass run on the banking system occur. They are very much afraid of a panic causing a general meltdown, which it would cause, because they are fully aware, despite the ludicrous stupidity of some of the people in high office in the United States, there are people in the Federal Reserve and in the Treasury Department who do know what is going on and know very well that if they just allowed SVB, as it's called, Silicon Valley Bank, to go to the wall, or if the Swiss allowed Credit Suisse to go down, then the consequences could be devastating across the entirety of the advanced capitalist world, something that the American ruling class is not prepared to take. But of course, there are contrary points of view, and there are some inside the American ruling class, perhaps not a majority, but certainly a significant minority who are arguing for the old Andrew Mellon approach. Now, if you don't know who Andrew Mellon was, he was a very successful American capitalist who became Treasury Secretary under the Herbert Hoover administration. Now, when the Great Depression kicked off following the Wall Street crash, Andrew Mellon was quoted as telling Hoover in a private conversation, though Hoover later recalled it in his memoirs, Mellon reportedly advised Hoover Liquidate labor, liquidate stocks, liquidate farmers, liquidate real estate. It will purge the rottenness out of the system. High costs of living and high living will come down. People will work harder, live a more moral life. Values will be adjusted. Enterprising people will pick up from less competent people. Now, Mellon there adding a, a good old bit of Protestant moralizing into the mix, just for good measure. And... Essentially, though, you must say that from the point of view of a capitalist, that is entirely the right advice to give. Because as Marx brilliantly demonstrated time and time again, capitalism is a system which has enormous productive potential within it that is unleashed, but it creates these wild and animal spirits, if you will, that create in the end too much, too many commodities, too much capital itself that creates a situation where the commodities are unable to be sold profitably. And so the logical step from the capitalist point of view is 
destroy the commodities until profitability is restored. In the case that we are facing now, it would be destroy the capital, destroy the businesses, destroy the banks until profitability is restored. Now, Hoover in 1929, tried to follow Mellon's advice, led to an even worse banking crash, and the US ruling class essentially deciding that they needed to do something to stabilize the situation very, very quickly, or things could get nasty. So why is it then that the US ruling class in the 1930s, even though many of them will have believed wholeheartedly in Andrew Mellon's approach to things, why did they decide ultimately that it wasn't a good idea? Well, the answer lies, or it lies in the form of its origins in, of course, the October Revolution of 1917. The existence of the Soviet Union, the growth, the rapid growth, in fact, of the Communist Party in the USA, even though it didn't have millions of members, it had enough and was organizing in enough key sectors of industry to worry the ruling class. The revolution in what became the Soviet Union haunted the ruling classes of not just the United States, but all of the imperialist nations. And so they were worried that if they had just let everything go to the wall, as Mellon suggested, again, entirely correctly from a capitalist point of view, then they would be faced with extreme problems in terms of class struggle rapidly escalating before they brought in FDR, and before FDR unveiled things like the New Deal and other measures that were designed to stabilize American capitalism and, more to the point, nullify the danger that was emerging from class struggle in the United States. Of course, American capitalism doesn't truly recover until, of course, the gigantic upsurge in war production in 1940 onwards. But it was that political problem that they were facing that meant that they couldn't or felt like they couldn't just chance it at mass liquidation, as Mellon suggested. And that's a problem that remains with the advanced capitalist nations to this day, even though they have launched wholesale class warfare on large elements of the working class. They have always taken care, even in the period of crisis since the 60s, to keep their fights limited. So after the Heath government's disastrous attempt to take on the entire British trade union movement at once in the early 1970s, and that, of course, leading to an embarrassing defeat for the Conservative Party, they reappraised their tactics and then decided to move union by union, workforce by workforce, taking care to isolate every group of workers in struggle, buy off those who could be bought off in other sectors, and make sure no generalized struggle emerged. And this is true for all of the ruling classes. Of course, they are reaching a point where they may need to go on a generalized assault, but they've tried very hard to avoid doing that. Not out of any sentimental reasons, of course, but purely for practical reasons, which is that they have been haunted by the idea of a mass class struggle, a mass destabilization, a discrediting of the institutions of the bourgeois state, even in the eyes of large sections of the petty bourgeoisie, that would lead to a huge problem that they had not faced in almost a century. And so you get instead, rather than mass liquidation, you've got this dual thing going on. On the one hand, they're creating this loose monetary policy after 2008. And on the other hand, they're continuing the process that's been ongoing since the 1970s, of increasing attacks on the working class, 
bacon slicing away all of the concessions that were made in the welfare capitalist period. And again, they have to proceed cautiously on that because if they did do things like, say, the American ruling class did what the rather more fanatical wing of the political establishments had wanted and privatized social security all at once, then that would create a huge political problem, which is why in the end they didn't do it in the 1990s. Though, of course, they do want to do it. They do want to privatize that system to bring it to an end, but they're afraid of the potential consequences of doing so. We may get into a position where the ruling class is demanding it so loudly that the political establishment has to move on it. But there's a real fear there and a real constraint that we should make note of. It is the same here with regard to the National Health Service. They would love to come out and just get rid of it completely. They've already, of course, if you go back and listen to our interview with Dr. Bob Gill, he chronicles how they've already successfully privatized a large amount of it. But the day they try and get rid of, all at once, the entitlement to free treatment at the point of delivery for all citizens of Britain, then that's, again, a huge political problem that could rapidly spill over into becoming a full-on crisis of the legitimacy of the bourgeois state in Britain. So for that reason, they have retained a more cautious approach, defined by both advances and retreats, having to retreat on certain issues, having to keep certain services open. They are constrained in what they can do, which is the reason why, of course, as I said, they opted for this policy of just flooding the system with liquidity in the hope that something would come up. You see, the other thing that has to be maintained in both the United States and Britain is the consumer economy. And the consumer economy is, of course, the product of the mid-period of the 20th century, of the rapid growth in workers' wages after World War II. It had emerged a little before World War II, but really it's that long period of capitalist expansion after World War II that births the consumer economy. And of course, it helps the ruling class ultimately to further divide and subdivide the working class in Britain and the United States, because of course, the upper layers have access to the ability to buy more products in the consumer economy. Being able to buy more commodities, being able to consume more is a big status symbol. It's something that's regarded as very important in not only making profits for capital, but also in stability. The consumer economy is a big part of the stability of the system because it, what it does is it gets a lot of people in the working class to buy in, more specifically by taking out loans to buy things, not just commodities, household commodities, but things like cars, and of course, ultimately, housing itself. And this consumer debt, which is enormous now, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, consumer debt in the United States, more specifically household debt, as it's defined by the Federal Reserve Bank, is $16.9 trillion, as it stood in the last quarter of 2022. So that's $16.9 in terms of household debt in the United States. And that includes everything, including credit card, bills, car loans, mortgages, etc. It's an enormous amount of debt that, of course, enables people to keep purchasing items to keep them consuming. Because the other thing that defines both American and British capitalism is that, of course, wages have stood still. 
wages have largely stood still for over 40 years now. And this, again, creates problems because if you've moved to a consumer and service-based economy and the working class does not have the money to consume said commodities or services, then you have a severe problem. So, of course, part of the response to that problem is the ever greater loosening of rules around credit, around who can get loans, around who can take out a mortgage, who can take out a car loan. Again, all of these solutions in the short and medium term that the ruling class pursued to keep that consumer boom going, to keep the consumerist economy afloat, all just create bigger and bigger problems down the line. So now you have gigantic amounts of household debt in the advanced capitalist nations is not going to get paid off anytime soon. And of course, now you start the process of raising interest rates. Well, that makes that debt even more unaffordable than it probably was already. Now, there's a lot of talk from some Keynesian and MMT economists about debt jubilees, forgiving debts, etc. And of course, the capitalists have absolutely no interest in that. Why would they? Because if you start forgiving debts, well, you're setting an incredibly dangerous precedent because now debt is massively important for the maintenance of the system. So again, you've got a problem. So the ruling class cannot take the Andrew Mellon approach as much as they would like to. They are constrained in what they can do in terms of liquidating things. They are afraid that if they allow banks to go to the wall, then the contagion will not be controlled. It will burn up thousands upon thousands of companies all the way across the advanced capitalist world and create enormous political instability, the likes of which has not been seen for over 50 years. You already have growing instability in France. You have it to a degree in Italy, in Spain. It's bubbling under the surface in Britain, but it is there. And it is, of course, there inside the United States itself. The ruling class have painted themselves into a corner over the course of the last 50 or so years via the choices that they have made. Now, of course, one of the reasons why the United States could continue on the course that it has been doing in terms of racking up debt is, of course, dollar supremacy. So the United States' debt will always be serviced because under the terms established that set up the petrodollar in the early 1970s, because oil has been priced in dollars for over 50 years, Dollars were always required if you wanted to buy oil. And this was, of course, a great way of making the US dollar not only the concern of America, but the concern of everybody. Because if the dollar went down, well, suddenly you all had a problem because everybody had bought so much of it. Now, though, there is another problem facing American capitalism, which is that through their own actions, to a large degree, they have created a situation where de-dollarization is becoming a reality. And you only have to look at the statements made by the Chinese foreign ministry recently, and indeed the Russians, as to why this is occurring. Because the whole purpose of the dollar as the international reserve currency, at least from the point of view of countries who are using it to carry out trades in, and therefore needing to buy it, is that it's a stable option. Now, when the US is throwing up hundreds and hundreds of sanctions, thousands of sanctions against thousands of individuals and entities who deal with China, who deal with Russia, who 
deal with Iran, but particularly those with regard to China. This is something which is going to affect an awful lot of capitalists and an awful lot of capitalists in many different countries are getting very pissed off at getting sanctioned for dealing with a company that dealt with a company that did some business with another company that has some interest in Russia or has some interest in China. It's making holding the dollar and the dollar's position as an international reserve currency look less and less appealing because the US itself is starting to impact upon capitalists' ability to freely do business with big countries, particularly China and Russia. And so what the US has done in the classic way of declining empires is that the more it has tried to strangle its opponents, but has done so via the usage of sanctions and other pressures other than direct military conflict, they have ended up undermining the very system which they sit at the center of. And as the Iraq war exposed, and this is of course 20 years since the US imperialists invaded and destroyed Iraq and occupied it for many years afterwards, that revealed quite clearly their military limitations, which of course go back much further to the disintegration of the US army in Vietnam, the US having to withdraw conscription, having to go to a volunteer force, and the decay and decline in the ability of the US ruling class to sustain mass casualty events because the damage done by the experience of the defeat in Vietnam has never really been undone. And this is what, of course, was a significant constraint on the US imperialists' ability to wage the war in Iraq, and they hoped at the time to wage further wars across the Middle East. Remember, the plan for what was termed a project for a new American century was supposed to entrench US power for another 100 years by achieving dominance within the Middle East, taking out the governments of Iraq, Iran, Syria at the very least. And this was all, of course, part of securing a new US empire that would last for another 100 years. And central to that was, of course, conquering these countries, finding and exploiting, hyper-exploiting the resources of these countries and the labor of these countries, dominating the markets of them. And of course, all in the service of finding US capital more profitable outlets to invest in, more profitable areas to invest in, because there are just not enough profits to be made inside the United States. And so an aggressive expansion plan to conquer and subjugate these countries, to conquer their markets, that is something that US capitalism very much needed in the late 90s and early 21st century. So this is the reasoning, ultimately, behind the adventure in Iraq. But they are unable to continue with it in the way that they originally wanted to, because, of course, the resistance of the Iraqis caused a lot of casualties, not gigantic amounts, but enough to create significant political problems for the Bush administration and make it politically impossible for Obama to commit to a perpetual occupation and eventually having to draw down the numbers there. And it is significant, as I mentioned when I did that episode on the Iraq war, that the bid by some dingbat US Democrats to introduce draft legislation in the United States was shot down by the Bush administration. And it wasn't just because Donald Rumsfeld was a devotee of Milton Friedman or something like that. It was because they knew very well that if they started trying to draft people in any significant numbers, that the game would be up. 
because the aim of militaries in the post-Vietnam era, particularly the American, British, and other imperialist countries' militaries, has been to make sure that those who are actually exposed to the realities of the imperial wars that are waged, that that is as small a segment of the population as possible. And that if you broaden that out to any degree, and certainly if you broaden that out and face huge casualties or significant casualties, then you are going to bring up big problems with relation to the stability of the state itself. Remember all the problems that Vietnam caused, and that was over 50,000 casualties spread over around about a decade. And that was at a point where the American bourgeois state enjoyed significantly higher legitimacy with the working class than it does now. So all of these served as constraints upon the ability of the US empire to make its presence felt to the degree that it needed to, to firmly subjugate a place like Iraq. So it had to switch tactics. It had to switch to uh, using hired jihadist guns in Libya and Syria and obtained a certain level of success with that. They were able to destroy the government of Muammar al-Gaddafi, who, just in passing, by the way, had done his deals with the Bush administration and with Blair. So why wasn't he safe from imperialist conquest? If you go down the Trotskyist route of believing that this man was now switching sides and was in bed with the imperialists. Well, Gaddafi and his government were making a tactical decision based on their isolation and their need to sell their oil more in international markets. And so they did a deal with the European Union and with the US imperialists to try and buy themselves some breathing space for the other projects that they had in mind. Of course, this was a bargain that they were able to drive with the imperialists who were in a difficult position at the time with the Iraq war going wrong. They welcomed an apparent diplomatic victory. But when the opportunity arose to destroy the Libyan state in order that Libya could be completely despoiled by imperialism to create a situation where the Libyan oil reserves and the Libyan markets and the Libyan people could be hyper-exploited in a manner that would really restore profitability to imperialism, well, then they grabbed that opportunity with both hands. You see, there's a difference between a government doing a deal in which it is able to bargain with imperialism and one where that government is destroyed and imperialism can impose the worst possible conditions it can on a population, which is, of course, the reason why they wanted to do the same thing with Syria and Assad, which is... Again, the Trotskyists and the Social Democrats and others will point out, oh, Assad did deals with US and British imperialism. Yes, he tried to. Tried to stabilize his government by striking a bargain with the Western imperialists. No bargain could be struck. Why? Because US imperialism and its allies are incapable of sticking to any agreement that doesn't deliver them what they need. And what they need is complete subjugation complete destruction, complete ability, unlimited ability to exploit anywhere and everywhere in the world to provide profitable outlets for capital. But of course, to return to the more positive side of this, the constraints revealed during the course of the Iraq war pushed the US empire down the route of using sanctions, using proxy wars, and their over-reliance on both pushed their enemies pushed the targets of these sanctions campaigns, these phony 
color revolutions, as they're called, of these destabilization operations to the point where they innovated ways around the sanctions regimes. They found ways to deal with and nullify the color revolutions. And now the U.S. is left in a situation where it desperately needs to do one of two things. It either needs to do the mass liquidation, Andrew Mellon style, liquidate capital, liquidate labor, liquidate everything domestically in order to, again, quoting Mellon, purge the system or to quote the liberal economist of the 1930s, Joseph Schumpeter, engage in acts of creative destruction because that's what capitalism needs to reinvigorate itself. Only it can't do that, not in the way that it would want. It's That is, the ruling class in the United States are moving towards a situation where they absolutely need to do that. But again, they are still constrained from doing so, meaning that their other option is to launch some kind of aggressive imperialist war against one of their major rivals in order to try and deliver them what they need that way, which is the ability to despoil and visit ruination upon a country, then be able to hyper-exploit it. But they can't do that with Russia. They've had a year of trying to deliver a defeat via a proxy war, fighting to the last Ukrainian, and it hasn't worked. And it's only going to get worse from here on in. And now they're trying to conjure up something with regard to China, pushing the Taiwanese or the Japanese or the idiots that run Australia into turning Taiwan into the next Ukraine. Whether they succeed in that or not, in part, at least hinges upon the outcome of the current holder of the Ukrainian position, that is, the actual Ukraine. So these are all signs of an imperialist system that is in a very deep crisis, and it is in a very deep crisis because it is constrained in what it can do. And I emphasize this point to do a counterpoint to the petty bourgeois leftist councils of despair that have been put out there in recent years. The imperialists, no doubt, are powerful. They are able to inflict immense horror upon the world. They are able to inflict death, destruction, chaos, and all four horsemen of the apocalypse at once. But they are constrained in what they can do now. So what is the likely next move in this particular game? Well, the need of the capitalists remains to solve this crisis of profitability. And as I said earlier, it is either mass liquidation via class war domestically or some kind of war overseas. Now, one of the worrying developments in recent weeks has been the amount of U.S. bourgeois politicians who never speak unless somebody's fed the words into the top of their empty heads, babbling on and on about the Mexican drug cartels, you know, those people that they have done very profitable business with over the years via the CIA, and the need to do something about them. Now, this is partly motivated, of course, by the fact that Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, is not a doormat for U.S. imperialism, who is somebody who is regarded as an obstacle for the objectives of U.S. imperialism in Mexico. So if they can turn Mexico into a free fire zone using the justification that they're going after the cartels, well, that will be something that they will be interested in doing, because if they can't take on the Russians, realistically, if they can't take on the Chinese without incurring significant damage to themselves, then U.S. imperialism is compelled to turn south 
Conquering Canada's pointless. They've already got it in all but name. But one temptation that might indeed is coming to them is the prospect of at least being able to dominate, quote-unquote, their hemisphere. And that's a pressure that will grow as the constraints on the ability of the US to actually win a war, or even to just fight a war against the Russians and the Chinese, become more and more obvious. How long before a section of the US ruling class thinks, well, we can't really do that, but we can still dominate this region. So these are all risks which are there, and it all comes back to the constraints on US imperialism, the constraints on their ability so far to wage the kind of class war that they would actually need to restore profitability to the system. But let's conclude by looking at what they would need to do to restore profitability inside the US and why it would be such an enormous undertaking in terms of the amount of violence that they would need to inflict upon the US working class. Now, the US working class's institutions in the form of its trade unions and its political parties in the form of, well, the old Communist Party USA, which has long since become a vote Democrat operation. All of that is long gone. Now, what remains of the welfare capitalist period of the New Deal, the FDR legacy, partially the Johnson legacy, isn't very much. What would they would need to do, however, to restore profitability inside the US is carry out a drastic reduction in the standard of living of the US working class, which would mean completely reorientating the whole way in which the US capitalist economy functions. To go from a consumer society with employment based mainly around services, based around tertiary sector industries, to go back to a system where you have extraction industries and production be profitable, you would need to drastically reduce wages, to drastically reduce the living standards that are expected by the US working class. You would need a class war of enormous proportions to do that, and you would trigger all kinds of resistance. Now, bear in mind what I said earlier about the ruling classes being careful in their assaults on the domestic working class to carry it out, i.e. carry out this class war, only on isolated elements at any one time. That would be their first option. But if the crisis gets so deep that they desperately need to carry out this assault, then they may need to go wider, which again, is a risky option, but we're approaching the point where it is either launch a ambitious imperialist war, which could go very badly for them and could result in mass casualties, which would further destabilize the system, or they try and carry out a class war on at least a section of the domestic working. Now, one of those options is going to have to come around sooner rather than later, because at the moment, all they're doing is perpetually kicking the can down the road. And the risk is that they become a more severe version of what has happened to the Japanese economy. Ironically enough, Japan was pushed into its current 30-year-plus slump by the actions of the US in the Plaza Accords and, of course, everything that flowed from that in terms of the recession, the scalping of the Japanese semiconductor industry, and the stealing of its business by the United States. Now, in a program that we did in 2021, when I was working with Layla on this program, we looked at the possible 
Japanification, as we put it at the time, of American capitalism, British capitalism, i.e. having a system which has little to no growth in it, where you have companies which exist or continue to exist in a zombie-like fashion for decades, where you have devastating impacts upon the social fabric of a country, and you start to see stagnation and decline, collapsing birth rates and all the other things that go along with it. You're already starting to see that in many areas of the supposedly advanced capitalist world now, as I speak to you, have been developing those morbid symptoms for quite a long time. So whichever way you cut it, stagnation and decline is all that capitalism has to offer at the moment, unless, of course, it is able to take drastic actions. And for US capitalism in particular, because of its dominant role still in the global financial system, because of the dollar's status as the international reserve currency, that a long period of stagnation in the manner that Japan has gone through would be even more fatal for the Japanese. Because the more people ditch the dollar, the more people, uh, more countries go over onto trading using the yuan or the ruble or the rupee or even the euro to a degree, then the greater the crisis of American capitalism becomes because suddenly all of this debt that is built up inside both the government and households becomes ever more unsustainable. So again, this is an acute crisis. The crash of Silicon Valley Bank, the crisis around crypto and things like that, those are just symptoms. The actual underlying reality is the crisis of profitability of U.S. capitalism as a whole and the increasing constraints faced by U.S. imperialism in terms of its ability to despoil whole areas of the world. And the crisis will continue until either the U.S. working class manages to find a way to put an end to this system, domestically speaking, or the American capitalist class finds a way to reinvigorate itself via imperialist wars, which again, tremendously risky proposition for them and everybody else, or they carry out such a ferocious degree of repression and suppression of the domestic working class that they are able to carry through Andrew Mellon's commitment to liquidate everything and carry out Schumpeter's term, creative destruction inside the United States itself. Perhaps they will need to go for some version of both, though waging an aggressive imperialist war whilst at the same time waging a vicious class war on the American worker. Well, that's something that requires a very particular system, and it begins with F and it ends with ism. Now, they've already been, along with the rest of the advanced capitalist nations, going down the route of increasing amounts of bureaucratic Bonapartist rule, and that's been going on for over 30 years. Now, in order to carry out such ferocious assaults upon the working class and imperialist wars overseas, well, you need something more than just bureaucratic Bonapartism. And that is where we get to the dangers of fascism and imperialist war and all the horrors that come along with that. It's because of the need for capitalism, fundamentally, to find these new areas of profitability, to restore profitability, to be able to carry out class war against the domestic working class, but to do so in such a way as retains the stability of the bourgeois state by taking enough of the petty bourgeoisie along with them for the ride, who will buy into this, who will actively take part in the repression of the working. All of this lies in our future, unless, of course, 
the working class of the imperialist nations can get organized enough to start launching a real fight back, not the kind of pathetic, useless, non-fight back that the union leaders have in mind in Britain and elsewhere, but one that actually can challenge imperialism, can challenge the ruling class in Britain and the United States in such a way as to actually threaten their rule. These are huge tasks that we have in front of us, but this is the reality of the situation now. U.S. capitalism, British capitalism, increasingly French capitalism, and the Germans as well, are all in a deep crisis that will necessitate drastic action from the ruling class very soon. And that is drastic action which all communists should be prepared to meet in terms of organizing amongst the working class and rebuilding communist political parties to face this assault that is coming from an increasingly desperate ruling class. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back with you again with more on my own personal story from Trotskyism to Marxist-Leninism. I'll be back with that tomorrow on our Patreon page, so hope you'll join me for that one. Now I will leave you yet again with some appropriate music. Depuis Valmy 93 et la grande révolution, les soldats de l'armée française sont les enfants de la nation. Pour sauver le peuple de France, pour répondre est toujours présent. Mais pas de guerre à l'espérance des ouvriers, des paysans. Gloire au grand jour de la commune, peuple et soldats main dans la main. La république il n'en est qu'une, celle du peuple les petits hommes qui gouvernent, ils font la pluie et le beau temps. Ils ont de l'or et des casernes, mais leur pouvoir n'aura qu'un temps. N'écoutez pas les tensionnaires, trahir n'est pas dans leur mandat. Vous n'êtes pas des mercenaires, mais des Français, peuples et soldats. Gloire aux grands jours de la commune, peuples et soldats main dans la main. La République n'en est qu'une, votre cœur bat sous l'uniforme du même rythme que chez nous. Et ce cœur-là, c'est un cœur d'homme qu'on ne peut pas mettre à genoux. Les dirigeants de contrebande, c'est tout cela qu'il faut briser. La voix du peuple vous commande, fraternisez, fraternisez. Gloire au grand jour de la commune, peuple et soldats main dans la main. La république n'en est qu'une, c'est du peuple sauveur.